Uh, modern art doesn't mean much to me. Uh, it's all a bit of a mystery. I go to the National Gallery in Canberra and I look at Blue Poles by Jackson Pollock. But there's no matter how hard I try, it looks like a bunch of squiggles and lines and splotches. People tell me it's a masterpiece and it's worth every cent that the Australian government paid for it, but to me it looks a little like a child's finger painting, really. What I need is for someone to take me, to look at it with me, someone who understands modern art. I'm sure that if they did and they explained it, I'd, I'd be able to understand and enjoy it more. I'd actually begin to see the painting. Nothing about Blue Poles itself would have changed, but there would have been a change in me that made all the difference, a change in how I understood the painting. Uh, some people go to the art gallery thinking that they are judging the paintings. Uh, but the reality is that the quality of the paintings is beyond question. They're great art. It's the viewers themselves who are really being tested as they sit there and they look and they make an assessment. They are the ones getting an eye examination, finding out how well they see, how well they understand what they're looking at. Uh, whether they are actually appreciating modern art or whether they're like me. <laughs> and it's a similar thing with Jesus. As people look at him and respond to him, it's really the people themselves who are being tested. Rather than them judging Jesus, they're being judged. They're having their own eye examination to find out how well they are seeing. That's the point Mark is making in this section. Uh, to truly believe in, uh, to truly see Jesus, you have to believe in him. It's not a case of seeing is believing, but really believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. So first up, let's think about not seeing. Verse 1, uh, chapter 8, it's another huge crowd. Once again, they've run out of food. You might think, hang on, this sounds familiar. Yes, it is. Chapter 6, we had the same situation. This is time for a lesson in looking. Verse 2, the test begins. Jesus said, here's a problem. I've got compassion on these people. They've been here for three days and they've run out of food. Should I send them home hungry? What do you think? Your time starts now. How will the disciples answer? Have they been paying attention? Verse 4, they reply, Where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? <laughs> bom, bom, wrong answer. They're not seeing Jesus at all. I think Jesus goes on to give them some hints. See if you remember this. How many loaves do you have? Seven. Okay, tell everyone to sit down. Anything yet? The disciples shake their head. What, what's he doing? We don't know. So Jesus continues. He takes the bread, verse 6. He says grace. He breaks it into pieces. He looks at the disciples. Anything yet? Then he hands the bread to the disciples and they hand it out to the people and they find some fish along the way and that seems to do the, the, the thing as well. And, and just like two chapters earlier... There's so much to eat, everyone goes home satisfied and there are even leftovers. I think this is Jesus' remedial lesson for his slow-learning disciples. He does it again because they didn't learn the lesson the first time. 5,000 Jews got fed in chapter 6, but the disciples didn't see Jesus clearly. They didn't, they didn't trust him. 
We can see that from their question in verse 4. But where can anyone get enough bread? And so now in chapter 8, Jesus does it again for 4,000 men. This is his lesson in seeing Jesus. Uh, Just like last time, after dinner, Jesus and the disciples hop into a boat. They head across to the Jewish side of the lake. And as they land, the Pharisees are waiting for them. This bunch of blind optometrists. They should be shining a light of God's word for people, helping them to see clearly, but they're just as blind as well. Look at what they say to Jesus. They think they're testing him, verse 11. They come and they ask him for a sign, and it's a test. Give us something to see, they say. Verse 12, Jesus sighs deeply. And he says, because they're looking in the wrong places, they'll miss the signs altogether. I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to you. You're stuck in your blindness. Uh, They hop in the boat again, they head back away from Jewish territory. They won't be receiving any more of Jesus' signs. Now we're used to the boat being a place where the disciples get let in on some secrets about who Jesus is. And we see the same thing here again, verse 14. Uh, They must have finished off their bags of leftovers that they collected because they've almost run out of bread. There's only one loaf left. And as they're talking, uh, Jesus gives them a parable. He gives them another eye test to see how well they're seeing, how well they're understanding. Uh, He says, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. He wants to make sure that they recognise the false shepherds who are not looking after their sheep. It yeast because small amount of yeast makes a, a big difference. Small number of leaders make a big difference. And Jesus says, watch out for these types of leaders. But the disciples, they, they haven't got a clue. Verse 16, what's he talking about yeast for? Is it because we didn't bring any bread? And it's now Jesus talks about how blind they all are. Verse 17, what? Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see... Or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? He's not talking about physical sight. Their eyes are fine, but they can't understand. The problem is to do with their insides. They're spiritually blind. Jesus connects it to hard hearts. That's about a lack of faith. It's about an orientation that's away from Jesus rather than towards him. They can see the evidence for who he is, but they're refusing to recognise what that means. They've seen 5,000 fed. They've seen 4,000 fed. But it hasn't produced trust. It hasn't affected their hearts. And perhaps that's you. Perhaps you know lots about Jesus, but your life is not showing that you trust him. You need to ask God to give you eyes that can really see. You need to ask God for a soft heart, a heart that doesn't just recognise facts, but trust those facts, that loves to rely on those facts. Well, eventually the boat makes it across the lake, Uh, And a blind man comes to be healed. Interesting, isn't it? He's talked about seeing and blindness 
and now a blind man appears. And Jesus will use him as a living parable to show the disciples what it means to see properly and not to see. So verse 23, he takes the blind man by the hand, he leads him out of the village, he puts spit on the blind man's eyes and he puts his hands on them. Verse 24, the man looks around and he says, I see people but they look like trees walking around. He's half seen. So Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes again and this time when he opens his eyes, not only does he see but he sees clearly. The first time the man could see but his perception was wrong. The people looked like trees. There wasn't anything wrong with the people. There was a problem with the way that the information was being interpreted or processed. He was, do you understand? He was seeing but not understanding. Does it sound familiar? That that was the disciples, seeing but not understanding. And that's Jesus' point. This two-part healing, it's got nothing to do with Jesus using the wrong technique or saying the wrong words or not having enough power. He's doing it this way to make a point, to show the disciples, these blind disciples, these seeing but not understanding disciples, that there's hope for them as well. That even though they see Jesus like a tree walking, Jesus can make them see clearly as well. It often works like that for people today. They they think they understand Jesus. Maybe they sit in church for years But one day, their eyes are finally opened and they realise that everything they knew with their heads, they now believe with their hearts. Jesus is not just Saviour, Lord and God. He's their Saviour, Lord and God. He didn't just die for sin in some general sense. He died for their sin. They see Jesus clearly. And that can only come from Jesus himself when he lays his hands on you and opens your eyes and softens your heart. Well, just to see how well the disciples themselves are understanding, Jesus gives them another eye test. Have a look at uh, verse 27. Here's question one. Who do people say that I am? I think for a moment. And then Peter gives the same three wrong answers from chapter 6. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Three trees walking around. Wrong answers for people who are not seeing Jesus clearly. So, question two of the test, verse 29, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? If you like, this is the bottom line of the optometrist chart. You know that one where you've got to lean forward and squint to to work it out what it's saying? Can you make out the letters? What's your spiritual vision like, Jesus says. Peter answers, verse 29, you are the Christ, or the Greek word, or in Hebrew, the Messiah. Bingo. He's finally seen clearly. He's, or is he? Because look at what happens next. Jesus continues the eye examination. Do they understand what they've just said? Uh, they've got the title right, Christ, but... Do they understand anything of the job description? And so verse 31, he says to them, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected 
by the elders, chief priests and teachers. He must be killed and after three days rise again. How does that fit into your plans? Is that what you see when you look at me as Messiah? And Peter shows that he hasn't really seen clearly at all. He's seeing a military king carrying a sword, not a crucified king on a cross. And so he rebukes Jesus. But Jesus turns the rebuke back on Peter, verse 33. Get behind me, Satan. These are not God's plans. Your head is full of man's plans, man's understanding of what victory looks like, of what the Christ will do. And instead he shows them, verse 34, what his kingdom is really like. Anyone who wants to join my kingdom, anyone who wants to join my army, you take up, well, not a sword, but you need to take up a cross. Yeah, you heard me, a cross. Follow men's ideas, try to save your own life by the sword, you'll end up losing it. But whoever loses his life for me, whoever denies himself, whoever becomes a cross-carrying foot soldier, will save his life. That's God's vision. Can you see it? We need to be careful that as a church we don't get sucked into doing what man's plans are. What people say a successful church is like, one that has the right programs or the impressive buildings or the trendy music or the corporate identity. But that's just carrying swords. God's plans are about carrying crosses. Our ministry as a church, whatever it is, needs to be about following Jesus. First and foremost, loving, serving him, imitating him, having compassion on the lost, preaching good news, serving each other, loving one another. Those are the things of God rather than the things of men. Well, what about us individually? What does it mean to follow the things of God rather than the things of men? It'll mean that integrity matters more than appearance. It'll mean heart is more important than head. Being more than doing. Loving more than knowing. Giving more than receiving. Serving before ruling. Honesty rather than outward shows. Humility before pride. Gentleness rather than point scoring. Crosses, not swords. It'll mean losing our lives for that mission. Giving him everything, putting him number one before everything. These verses are a grand, sweeping, uncompromising, dangerous, comprehensive challenge. Does this describe your life? 
lost for Jesus? Be honest. Most of the time it doesn't describe mine. Is there a half-heartedness, a fickleness about your passions, your life, your choices, your priorities, your direction? Jesus continues, If you're ashamed about suffering and rejection and death, these things I've just been talking about, be careful the Son of Man won't be ashamed of you when his true glory is seen. Yes, he'll suffer, but true glory is coming. When he comes back to judge with his angels, be careful he's not ashamed of you. That day will be a victory celebration worth seeing. He wants the disciples not to lose sight of that procession because they're preoccupied with a puny, insignificant human victory parade. And then to show them what that future looks like, he he gives them a little foretaste, a little window into the future, what lies beyond the cross. Verse 2 of chapter 9, he takes Peter, James and John up on a high mountain. For those of us who know our Old Testaments, Jesus is showing them that he's God. Firstly, he waits six days. Why six days? It could be to do with the seventh day, with a new creation type idea. I think primarily it's, that's how long Moses waited at the foot of Mount Sinai before he went up and met with God. That's what these disciples are doing. They wait six days, they go up, and before their eyes, Jesus is changed, he's transfigured. The Greek word is metamorphosized. Like a caterpillar changing into a butterfly. One moment he's he's a normal man, just like the other three, and then he's something else. Verse 3, his clothes become dazzling white. He's changed from earthly man into resurrected, glorified, exalted, heavenly son of man. And the three finally see clearly a glimpse of who Jesus is. And Moses is there talking to Jesus. Just like he did when he met God on Mount Sinai. And Elijah is there as well. He's talking with Jesus. As Bill reminded us, he's got experience meeting God on a mountain as well. And then last of all, God joins him to the conversation. And he adds his approval. Almost the same words as Jesus' baptism. Verse 7. This is my son whom I love. This is him. Look at him. Listen to him. The disciples saw Jesus as an earthly warrior. Jesus corrects their vision. He'll rescue people, but it will be through his suffering and death. Those who follow him will need to do the same, will have to carry a cross, not a sword. In the short term, he's carrying a cross, but in the long term, this is the glory and the victory. This is the vision. This is the future, when suffering becomes glory. And we need to look at that as well. We need to look at this transfigured, glorified Jesus. That will keep us dragging our crosses through this life. It'll keep us naming the name of Jesus. It'll keep us losing our life for the sake of that one. When our instincts tell us we should be trying to save our life. When our instincts tell us 
to get a real job, to go for that promotion or that prestige or to seek that pleasure or that power. When our instincts tell us to spend our time building our own lives up rather than living for others. It's this perspective of the transfigured Jesus that a man called Hugh Latimer had and took to his death. He was an Anglican bishop during the English Reformation. The year was 1555. Uh, He was a great preacher uh, with compassion for the humble and poor. His sermons were practical and warm and simple. Uh, He didn't put up with any of the nonsense of some of the other bishops and priests around him at the time. Uh, He was a disciple who was carrying his cross. The problem was the Catholics were back in power at that time in uh, history. They were making things tough for the Anglican ministers, the Church of England ministers, interrogations, torture, prisons and murder. Uh, Bishop Latimer wouldn't deny his faith and so he was taken from prison with his good friend Bishop Nicholas Ridley and they were tied to the stake and the fire was lit underneath them. Uh, And... Bishop Latimer's last words, famous as recorded in John Fox's Book of Martyrs, were to his friend, uh, the Bishop Ridley, beside him. And they were words that showed that his eyes were not on man's plans. Uh, God's plans had told him that there would be victory beyond the cross. And he believed those. He believed that God's plans would shine through the weakness of man. And here's what he said. Play the man. Master Ridley, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. He was a man who saw the transfigured, the glorified Jesus clearly, who saw beyond the cross, who saw that losing his life in the short term meant gaining it forever. That's the perspective that we need. That's the perspective that will give us strength to follow after him through our lives. Now I hope and pray that we'll never have to do anything like what Latimer had to do. But we do have brothers and sisters around the world who are doing that at this very moment in different countries who are taking up their cross literally and following Jesus to their death. It probably won't happen to us, but but we are called to deny ourselves, to lose our life, to be bold, to name the name of Jesus and to not be ashamed. To keep, and the way to do it is to keep that clear vision of the exalted, glorified, victorious Jesus who's waiting for us, waiting to welcome us home. That's what it means to see Jesus clearly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, our church tradition is, is about uh, study and uh, being on the academic side and learning. Uh, but we don't want to be just that, Lord. We want to be people who give up our lives, uh, who lose our lives for your sake, uh, who stand up for you, who, who see you clearly, who have soft hearts, who take up our crosses. And we pray that we would do it and that you would be glorified through us. Amen.